Christmas is easy. We've all seen a baby, those chubby little thighs, that wrinkled neck, kind of the wobbly head and those shiny bright eyes all wrapped up in a blanket. Love is born. It takes no convincing. Easter is hard. Who here has ever seen a person risen from the grave? None of us. We cannot begin to imagine what a person looks like after rotting in the tomb for three days. Life after death? Can we convince ourselves that it's possible? Mark is the first to write the story of that day, and he might have done a better job of convincing us. His story of the first Easter leaves the risen Christ off stage, and we never get to glimpse even the nail prints in his hands. Mark's story is more like a minimalist piece of art, you know, just with some blobs of orange and black and white and green paint and very blurry lines. Mark tells the story of Easter morning much like he tells the story of Jesus, raising a lot more questions for us to ponder instead of wrapping it all up neatly with a bow. Now, on the way to the tomb, the women ask a very practical question. Who will roll away the stone for us? And when I first read that, I thought, well, these are typical women always thinking ahead, planning, what will need to happen next, getting everything organized. The details of the tender anointing need to be planned. But then I thought, why didn't they think of this problem sooner before they packed up the spices and the oil and set out that morning? After all, they had seen the stone rolled shut locked in the bedrock groove of the cave, and everyone knows it is so much harder to open a stone than to roll it shut. Maybe this question that they raise on the way to the graveyard that morning is kind of a subtle reminder that the strong ones, the men, have run away and hidden in fear. Who will roll away the stone? Only these three women dared that morning to venture out to be associated with the one who was crucified by the authorities. When they arrive at the grave, they are stunned to see that the stone has already been rolled away. By whom? I wonder. But the text doesn't say, only that the three women stooped down and crept inside the dark cave, and there they found not the one whose death they came to grieve, but instead an empty place with a man dressed in white, maybe an angel, maybe a man, seated there at the right side of Jesus' body, no longer there, but one at the right side where they had been fighting about where to sit, who gets to be on his right. There he is. This unidentified one in white gives the women two commands. Don't be afraid. Go and tell. And they defy both commands. They tell nothing to anyone, and they leave the tomb trembling in fear. So how did the word get out? 
If the women didn't go on CNN that evening to announce the news, how did the people find out that he was risen from the grave? Did they whisper it from house to house as they hung the laundry out to dry? Or did they tell it secretly to their very best friends not wanting to broadcast it too loudly, lest people think they were crazy for believing in a miracle of such preposterous proportions. Mark leaves me wondering, how did that stone get rolled away, and how did the word of the resurrection get out? For we all know that the real miracle was not just that Jesus rose up, but that the people, too, rose up and patterned their lives in the future after the pattern of his profound and gracious love. And so how did they make that shift from being the forlorn followers, the depressed ones, befuddled, traumatized, and terrified, to become finally a radical force of generous love that changed the entire course of history? What unlocked the tomb so that Christ could come and live inside of them? What enabled the Holy Spirit to enliven them and so that they would spread the good news of love, saying over and over and over again that that love still wins, that evil did not get the final word? Some have suggested that Easter didn't happen in a simple moment when the corpse breathed again, but it happened when a community joined forces to push back the barricade that limited God's love. So maybe it was some kind of communal event. Some have even said that the time between Easter and the birth of the church might not have been days or weeks or months, but maybe even years, a slow, steady dawning upon them that the truth that lived in Jesus was still alive on earth, even though they could no longer see him. I've seen this happen. I've seen Jesus come back in this way before through a community, and I suspect you've seen it too. Joanna Adams tells the story of a teacher who was working inside of a hospital. She would go around each day and visit children in the hospital, helping them to stay current with their schoolwork while they were hospitalized. One day she received a call from an elementary school teacher asking her if she would visit a boy there in the hospital. Sure, she said, I'll stop by and I'll help him with his homework. The assignment was to work on nouns and adverbs. When the hospital teacher visited the little boy's room, she was dismayed to discover that he was in the burn unit, recovering from very severe burns and was in horrible pain. She was embarrassed when she walked into his room and saw his misery, and she wondered if she should even put him through this senseless exercise. But she stumbled on, kind of ashamed of herself, really, but not knowing what else to do once she was in there in his room with the school books. The next morning, the nurse in the burn unit stopped the teacher. What did you do to that boy yesterday? Well, before the teacher could apologize, the nurse continued, we had given up on that boy, but ever since you have visited him, he seems to be fighting back. Even the treatment seems to be working. And the little boy later explained that he indeed had given up hope, but that had all changed when he had come to the simple realization that they would never send a teacher to work with him on nouns and adverbs if he was dying. 
Sometimes the stone barricading our hearts gets rolled away by a loving friend or a generous family member or a group of strangers in the church who love us when we are just about to give up on ourselves. And this community, this individual, this other, carries us through to new life. Other times, I think we are raised by some mysterious stirring within our own hearts. I love that story about the reporter who was interviewing Mrs. Einstein, and the reporter asked her if she actually understood the theory of relativity. And she said, oh, no, but I trust Albert. Maybe the women stumbled away from the tomb and hid in their homes for fear for a little while, and eventually they go out and they go ahead to Galilee, and they find others, and they begin to break the bread and drink the wine, and not just remember him, but proclaim him, saying that this love and this grace were not defeated on the cross. Sometimes, though, I can't seem to attribute the rolled-away stone either to the community or to something within. Sometimes it seems like there is absolutely no tangible reason why a particular person rises up to new life. Truly, when I think about the pivotal moments in my own life, I am unable to attribute them either to my own hard work or to another person's strength and wisdom. I simply have no answer for how it happened. I suspect you too have a moment in your life when grace seemed so real that you were absolutely speechless, unable to explain it. One of those moments happened for me two years ago. It came to me in a text message. I was on the other side of the world, 11 and a half time zones away. I was unable to sleep because of jet lag and I was fidgeting with my phone in the middle of the night when I received a text from my son in college who was in Nashville, Tennessee. Connor was born into this church. In fact, he was born between the 9 o'clock and the 10 o'clock services. And my son has never known a day of his entire life when he was not embraced by the love of this congregation. He was baptized there in that baptistry. He traveled with the youth group as they went all around the country and the globe. He also attended Catholic school here for 15 years. And so having been a part of this church and the Catholic education system, he is steeped in the faith. Now, we had a rule in our house Everyone living in our house had to worship somewhere every week. And we said to our kids, you can be Buddhist, you can be Catholic, you can be Jewish, you can be Muslim, you can be atheist. We don't care what you decide, but every seven days you have to pause and say thank you to the creator of the universe for all that is good in this life. And when Connor got to be in high school, his choice of where to worship was most often influenced by a girlfriend. And so he was often found on Sunday evenings at the Catholic Church. 
worshiping with our Catholic brothers and sisters. But by the time Connor graduated from high school and drove off to college, he professed no belief in God whatsoever. He was so eager to move beyond the confines of a family saturated with ministers, his mother, his father, his grandfather, his uncle. And so two years later, I get this text while I'm up in the middle of the night looking at my phone on this little rickety bed in India. And the text says, I went to church today. And I thought maybe he was joking. But it turns out Connor was completely serious. A friend of his, someone he admired, had invited him to church. And in that place, he discovered a side of his own life that was truth and beauty and open to the transforming power of God's eternal love. And what amazed me about that moment was that I, his mother, the minister, had absolutely nothing to do with it. The stone had been rolled away. The gospel truth that the risen Christ could indeed rise up had been heard in his soul. And faith became for him not just mom's job or the Catholic school's obligation, but a deeply authentic way of living his own wild and creative life. Have you ever been at that point where the fertility specialist says, this is the last try? Or the adoption agency social worker calls and says, let's just give it one more month. Have you been in the oncologist's office when he says, well, there's this one more experimental treatment that we could try. Have you been on a raft with refugees fleeing their whole lives to go to a place where they know nothing? Have you been in that place where the business has 60 more days to turn a profit where it must close? In all of these places, we ask, who will roll away the stone for us? And then we realize it's already been rolled away. And we are stunned into silence. Al Letson told his story live on stage in St. Louis at the Moth Radio Hour. Al was a young playwright who had received a call inviting him to go to Malawi. And he had never heard of Malawi, but he learned that the project was just perfect for him. Al said, you know, Malawi is an African country and I'm African American. And the job, he said, is to write and I have a, a background in journalism. And he said the story had these spiritual overtones to it. And he said my dad was a Southern Baptist minister and I had grown up steeped in the faith and even though I haven't been to church in a very long time, he said, I'm still kinda church-ish. And so, they went to Malawi and they explored the history and the politics of Malawi so that they could write this play, Al and two other colleagues. And one day, Al said, I've got to see a prison here to talk about how the people were political prisoners and moved into freedom. We'll write that into the play. And so they took Al and his team to the worst prison in Malawi. 
They said no photos. But Al was allowed to take in his device where he could do an audio recording. And when he walked into the prison, he was overcome because all of the prisoners were young men between the ages of 14 and 20, and they were all the same skin tone as Al. The floors of the prison were nothing like any prison he had seen in the United States. They were clay, and there was excrement in the corner of the room. Al was overcome by the horror. And then this man, who said he was a deacon from the church, appeared and said, you know, the boys here in the prison have a choir, and they don't ever get to sing. They never have visitors. Would it be okay if they sang for you? And so the prisoners began to sing the traditional call and response music of Malawi, and Al stood there politely and detached, listening, paying attention. And then the second song began to to be sung by the choir, and Al began to sway with the music. And on this third song, Al became part of the choir. He began singing words in a language he knew not. He began dancing with ecstatic energy, and he was overcome by such profound emotion that he could only call it the presence of God. And the words that came to him with these overwhelming feelings were the words, all will be well. When they left the prison, they had a 40-minute drive back to the hotel, and Al wept all the way back to the hotel. He ran up to his hotel room. They were going to do the most important interview next, and he wanted to download the recording from the prison, especially that glorious music, onto his computer so that he could make room for this next interview. But when he got into his hotel room, he was devastated to see that there had been a glitch and none of the time in the prison had been recorded. He went out to his colleagues and he apologized and his colleagues said to him, it doesn't matter. We were never meant to have what happened on tape. If we did, we would play it over and over and over again looking for the precise moment in which God appeared and we would never find it. Easter, you see, is an unexplainable mystery. I cannot tell you what happened, only that I am absolutely sure that something happened and it was God's doing. <laughs>